Welcome to the Thousand Voices Podcast. My name is Muja Nasgari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes on Me, and I'm your host for this podcast series. Each week, you will hear stories of fearless leaders and entrepreneurs to get inspired and learn how to become a successful leader. The following episode is made in collaboration with Women in AI as part of a series of interviews for Women in AI Awards Australia and New Zealand 2022. Before talking about our guest's incredible story, I would like to make an announcement. At Thousand Eyes and Me, we are supporting a new initiative called Thousand Faces to go even further in our mission to support women. Thousand Faces is an exclusive investment club using carbon-negative art NFTs to finance female-led projects. We are combining art, technology, diversity, and the environment. You can join our club at www.thousandfaces.art and follow us on our social media to learn more about our investment areas and exciting news. Hello, I'm Mujan Askari, founder and CEO of Thousand Eyes and Me, and I'm delighted to be hosting this series as we talk to influential leaders, understand a little bit about their journey. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Denise Bauer, an internationally recognized expert in artificial intelligence, who is passionate about improving health by understanding the secrets in our genome using cloud computing technology. She is CSIRO's Principal Research Scientist in Transformational Bioinformatics and Adjunct Associate Professor at Macquarie University. She keynotes international IT, life science, and medical conferences and is an AWS data hero. And her achievements include developing open source bioinformatics softwares to detect new disease genes and developing computational tools to track, monitor, and diagnose emerging diseases such as COVID-19. She has recently won the Women in AI Awards for 2022 for AI and innovation category and first runner-up of the overall Australia New Zealand category. Hello, Denise. So glad you could join me today. Hello, Madame. Fantastic to be here with you today. Thank you so much. So, Denise, uh, tell me actually what does it mean, bioinformatics? You have a PhD in that. Can you tell me what it is? Yes. So, bioinformatics is basically the uh, combination of IT technologies um, and then applying that to the life science field. So basically analyzing large volumes of data. And historically, this has been genomic data. So bioinformatics was basically founded in, in that discipline because for the first time we had so much data to analyze and clearly that needed to have, you know, to be done with computing resources and hence bioinformatics. Wow, that's fascinating. So it's basically a pretty new domain, right? Well, I mean, it's relative, right? <laughs> When I started almost 20 years ago by now, um, it certainly was a new domain, right? <laughs> but <laughs> yes, by now it's an old hat. <laughs> wow. So how have you seen that this major evolving over time? Yes, it's actually interesting that the narrative hasn't changed that much. So when I started um, the first 
genome pro- or the human genome project uh, was in full, full swing to analyze the, uh, you know, the first human genome to decode the first human genome. And back then, it sort of was said that there is so much, you know, hidden in that three billion letters of the human genome that we'll be able to predict our disease risks, our metabolic preferences for certain drugs, and so on. So it was sort of said that it will revolutionize the medicine field, and that was twenty wow. years ago. Since then, there were methods developed. We now have a better understanding of the human genome. But I think <laughs> the, the secrets are still just as hidden <laughs> as they were 20 years yeah. ago. And that we do know a little bit about, um, you know, Mendelian diseases, diseases that are, that are caused by single genes. But the common complex diseases that are really a burden on the healthcare system, like diabetes or stroke or Alzheimer's, it's pretty much still a, a very much opaque space of how the genome is actually influencing risk and whether an individual that has a disease gene, in quotes, is actually developing the disease later on in life. Wow. So you're able to basically detect that early enough and eventually maybe prevent it in the next, let's say, baby who's going to be born or something like that? Yes. So newborn screening, which traditionally has been a heel heel prick test um, and then a set of biomedical tests. And here in Australia, twenty about 20 diseases are detected for, um, you know, as part of the newborn screening. But we do know many more genes that have genetic implications. So if there's a genetic change, a misspelling in the genome that can cause a disease, and obviously you want to find those diseases as early as possible in order to treat and intervene. And now there is the initiative of moving that to genome sequencing, which will give us more than 200 diseases to be diagnosed at birth. Um, and you know that is a, a huge step forward. But when we think about the 15,000 or so <laughs> diseases that we already know by now, that is still a drop in the ocean and there is so much, so much yet to come. Wow. So the humanity knows 15,000 diseases. Is that the number? Well, again, it's what is a disease and it's sort of diseases are spectrums <laughs> and going in and What out. is a disease? You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think as sort of a proxy figure, it, it was at 15,000 diseases. But then again, what is a disease? What is the distinction between diseases? Can you group them together? Should you group them together? Mm-hmm. So for example, Alzheimer's, is that truly a single disease or is it more a bag of mixed wow. diseases that have the same you know, physiological manifestation? Wow, that's so profound. I've never thought of diseases that way, actually. Yes. <laughs> Wow. So for example, if in the case of flus, we've had like different flus and then maybe COVID was like, you know, one of them, like the the SARS, and then we have different SARS. So are they like separated diseases in terms of category or we like, what what do you think? What's your take on that? Yeah, I think this is a a different kind of question though. So I was talking about the non-communicable diseases or things that are not um, infectious, that are not caused by pathogens. Oh, sure, instead, right, yeah. Instead in the genome, right. In the genome, exactly. But of course, you're absolutely right because the, the, the pathogens, they have genomes too, right? And therefore, one pathogen might be different from the next pathogen, but only by a single base pair 
or base, for example, with COVID. The different strains that we, you know, that were identified, Delta and Omicron from the original Wuhan, there are, you know, 20 changes potentially in the overall genome of the virus, which is 30,000 bases. So 20 misspellings or alterations in the genome can cause a different strain and a very different outcome. So we do know that the Omicron strains are now much more infectious than the original Wuhan was. And that is done by, you know, those couple of changes in the genome. So coming back to your question, yes, there are very different very different things, even though overall the virus might be the same, it might have the same name, but the underlying blueprint, the genome, might be different. Wow, that that's so fascinating. <laughs> that's so fascinating. So basically, all these changes, so you're kind of following the story and the evolution of the like different little diseases and then how they're evolving and we're trying to protect humanity. That's fascinating. Yes. Yes. And rather than just looking at something like in the past. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So Denise, you talked a lot about like a lot of words uh, as an industrial engineer and corporate finance expert. I have no idea. Can you tell me in like easy words, what is genome sequencing and pathogen, if you can tell to a five-year-old kid? (laughs) Yeah. So a genome is basically the blueprint of an organism. It has all the information that encodes how that organism looks like and how the organism behaves. Um, And all of that is encoded in individual letters. So in the human genome, those are four letters. And the overall genome is three billion letters long. And all of that encodes, you know, how your body is created, how it grows up, how it evolves over your lifetime um, and what kind of disease risks you're going to have, uh, yeah, and so sometimes even your your preferences can be um, encoded in the genome as well. So it's basically that's letters in the um, DNA that we have. Exactly, exactly. Yes, the strings of the DNA, okay, the chromosomes. Okay, great. So how did you fall into the AI world? How, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Again, it comes back to that the genome is so incredibly large three billion letters. And in order to identify the single mutation that might cause a certain disease, it is impossible to, you know, eyeball it and analyze it with traditional approaches, which is where machine learning comes in. So we developed a methodology that can look at the genome and how the genome interacts with each other, with other genes and, you know, the whole interplay of this complex blueprint or regulatory instructions. And with that, we can then identify which genes, individual genes, but also what are the combination of, you know, drivers of disease and exacerbation factors and resilient factors. And all of this uh, we analyze with machine learning. Wow, that's fascinating. So do you have any like mind-blowing like recent findings that you had that it's easy to to share with our audience? Yeah, topical. Uh, So COVID, for example, we do know that in the COVID genome, there is the spike protein, which is what the vaccine was developed for and what the virus uses in order to enter the human or the host cell. And we recently did an analysis to look at what are the dangerous mutations? So the mutation that cause more severe disease outcome. 
And to do that, we had a cohort of individuals that had very severe symptoms, death, for example, and um, another cohort that did not have symptoms at all or very mild symptoms only. And we were looking at the, the genome of the viruses that was infecting these two groups. And we're looking at what is the difference between the two groups. And what we found is that, yes, the spike protein, as expected, plays a role. And mutation in that particular protein can cause severe disease. But what's interesting was that there are areas in the rest of the genome of the virus that are actually as predictive as well of the outcome of the disease. And one gene in particular was interesting, which is NSP14, which was independently shown that it actually downregulates the host immune system. And what we found is that the virus has acquired, in quotes, like it has evolved a mutation in that particular protein, which obviously likely has an influence on how it is interacting with the host immune system. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. Uh, it just made me think of, I don't know why, but it just made me think of climate change and the way humanity is changing the planet with its basically uh, technologies. Have you had or did you have any projects to see what was the effect of, you know, these changes on on the genome of of ourselves or on basically bacteries on the planet or our other animals or plants? Do you have any knowledge about that? Yes, so CSIRO is Australia's research um, organization and it has a very broad research area. My focus is mainly on human health, but there are other areas in CSIRO that looks at environmental impacts. And one project was around the increase in the temperature and how this is affecting merino life and whether there are any genes that are evolved as a consequence of that, of, you know, responding to the heat stress, for example, and identifying those genes that make organisms, certain organisms, more resilient compared to others. It's an interesting research project there for sure. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. I actually read somewhere that basically many insects got much more resilient to these changes. And well, I read like also the numbers uh, until I, my latest <laughs> Davos, which was 2020, we had unfortunately lost more than 60, 65% of the biodiversity over the course of our existence on the, on the planet. So that basically resulted in different behaviors from the environment, from nature, and some species have mutated and changed. And yeah, for example, there are some beetles that have become super, super resilient to, to these changes because the environment is getting more rough on on the whole planet. So yeah, that was quite interesting and, and actually sad to, to read that. That's true. But I mean, evolution in, in itself is very powerful. Of course. So for example, another another sad area is of course the rise of antimicrobial resistance, which is the consequence of evolution as well and the evolutionary pressure around the current drugs that we're using, um, the antimicrobials that we're using and how we're using it. So the bacteria that are evolving now to acquire the antimicrobial resistance, uh, which is probably going to be the biggest problem that humanity is going to face in the future, or has ever faced, probably. Yeah, yeah, how it's affecting the air, the soil, especially the soil, yeah. Yes, or in the human context as well, where we currently take it for granted that you can treat 
infections with antimicrobial resistance or antibiotics, right about the last line of defense drugs are failing, then we're back to the, the dark ages <laughs> where we, it's, it's back to our own immune system and the capability of our immune system yeah. to fight infections. Wow, that's that's very fascinating. So tell me a little bit more about the AWS Data Hero. <laughs> you were in Data Hero at basically AWS Data Hero. Tell me how you became that and what have you done? Yes. So an AWS Hero is a distinction given out by Amazon Web Services to international cloud practitioners, um, the sort of of international note <laughs> that have done interesting research or interesting applications using um, the AWS cloud. And then there are certain subcategories so machine learning and serverless and community building and data. So, um, and, and there are not very many data heroes out there. Um, data science being a relatively new field. Uh, very akin to academia, which is probably the reason why they're not that many, because in academia, doing data science and data analysis is, you know, very common. Whereas in the industry, doing this deep kind of analysis is only now emerging with the benefit of the technology that is that is now available, where you don't have to be, you know, an expert or, a, <laughs> you know, an academic in order to do to use the analysis tools. So yeah, the data discipline, and, and that's that's what I got. And you, you don't receive it necessarily for a specific um, achievement. It's more your overall, I wouldn't call it performance, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. It's sort of the, your overall profile and um, your engagement with the community and the continuously striving for coming up with new solutions. So for example, in... 2016, um, God, long time ago already, <laughs> we developed one of the first serverless applications. So in uh, public cloud architecture, there's a new concept of serverless where um, you don't necessarily have everything on one machine, but you decouple basically the compute task from the infrastructure and have them as functions. So functional compute, serverless compute. And we were the first group to show that you can do, you can apply this concept to something as complicated as a research approach, um, where before it was used, you know, for Alexa skills, <laughs> translating, um, you know, speech to text or something like that. And we applied it to genome analysis, uh, specifically genome editing tasks. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. I actually want to know, what is your view on the current AI advancements and how, how do you see the future of AI moving forward in the next couple of years up to, I mean, going further than 10 years is very difficult, of course, for anybody to predict. But what is your vision? What is your point of view on the current state of AI and the future advancements? What are the things that you think you might see emerging in your area? Yeah, I mean, for me, machine learning has always been part of the toolkit that I'm using. And it literally is that it's it's one tool in the toolbox that you use for specific questions. It's not the silver bullet. So I think at the moment, it's sort of thrown around as this fantastic solution for everything. It will tackle everything. 
And that's just not the case. And it won't be very likely, it won't be the case ever that it's going to be the solution for everything. The thing that is different now compared to, mm -hmm. say, 10, 20 years ago is that we have more data accumulated and more data means we can train the tools better. We can train tools with more details and therefore the predictions become better. And the second thing that has changed is the compute power that is available to, you know, on a casual basis. Whereas before you would have to apply for high performance compute facilities in order to train your really complex detailed model. Whereas now you can just spin up a public cloud provider account and, uh, you know, train a really deep neural network <laughs> and, and, and do something fancy with that. <laughs> so I think with these two changes, it's, it becomes more readily available and it's, it becomes more powerful in terms of the questions that we can answer. But it does not fundamentally change that a machine learning tool is only as good as the, um, the parameters you give it or the, the, the context that you're applying it to. So for example, with a supervised machine learning method, right, you do need to give it the data and the labels in order to train it. And with unsupervised approaches, you need to specify the, the boundaries in which the machine explores it. But in both cases, you just sort of need to give it a guardrails, the guardrails around it. And I think with this limitation, it will never be the silver bullet that can just be applied and will change things, you know, by itself. In saying all of that, you know, in putting all of these caveats in, of course, it's an absolutely fantastic tool that we wouldn't be able to do the genomic data analysis and the disease gene detection or COVID analysis without machine learning. And similarly in the medicine, in the medical field, for example, I think the, the way it's used or it will be used more and more there is to support the clinicians to take um, the heavy lifting away from them so that they can concentrate and spend their quality time on the actual decision-making so a concrete example would be that when you look at x-rays, currently the, the clinicians on average have five minutes or so to look at the x-rays that they are presented with. And in those five minutes, they have to rule out the artifacts, find the things that are interesting, and then diagnose the things that are actually interesting. Whereas if a machine can rule out the artifacts and already pre in a circle, the mm -hmm. things that the clinicians should be focusing on, then I think those five minutes are probably spent in more quality time and the diagnosis is better. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. So one of the questions that always pops up in my mind is that, um, well, we have we have done such a great job to create these technologies and we have many of them in our hands, but how scalable, scalable is that? How, how often do we see them in the actual hands of, let's say, doctors and experts in different, let's say, hospitals or institutions? How, how do you see that maybe in, in your hometown or in, in Australia? I think in, in machine learning space, there's still the distinction of you know, theoretical advancement that goes to journals and, and to conferences. And people are very happy with just publishing theoretical paper that never, ever actually get Im implemented. 
Whereas what is needed <laughs> is something that is not only implemented, but that is robustly implemented and that yeah. <laughs> can be explained and can be used by researchers. And I think there's still a massive gap in the progression or the translation of these academic you know, brilliances <laughs> to the real world. Yeah. That's had been always like, I actually interview a lot of academic people and that's had been always like the topic on the, <laughs> on the top of our conversation that we have spent like so many years and so much effort to build, you know, that technology, but it doesn't really, most of the time comes in the hands of um, end users that they can benefit from that or it doesn't become that scalable. So do you know like what happens? Like it stays maybe at that theory and at that publication and then it's, it doesn't, you know, mm. scale. What's your point of view on that? Yeah. So I work for the um, eHealth Research Centre here in Australia, which is the largest digital health initiative and worldwide quite unique in covering the full value chain, right, from theoretical basic science all the way up to developing technology that go into the clinical practice. So we do see um, the progression of algorithms all the way up and we do see, you know, the hurdles and the roadblocks along the line. And I think the biggest roadblock really is that the improvements of AI are not orders of magnitude usually, right? They are incremental improvements. And when it comes to commercialization, the first thing that people ask you is how big is the market and how much of a rate changing innovation is it? And if it's not massive, and if the market is not massive, then it is very difficult to actually find funding for, you know, applications like that. And I think therefore the biggest problem really is sort of the unrealistic expectation of investors mm -hmm. that it needs to be the next, uh, you know, blockbuster or they won't invest in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the funding issue is it blocks all this project too. So, an, another issue that I have noticed is regulations. For instance, self-driving cars, right? So uh, we have now so many companies developing pretty good, you know, actually technologies for that. And one of the main reasons, I mean, the first one was basically regulation, and then we had like the network and internet five G issues, and and implementing that also bind with the regulatory basic frameworks and local re regulations of each country. So that's also something that it blocks as well. Yeah, I think it's similar in the health space as well. Although you could argue that it is needed <laughs> in the health space. So it's not a, it's not necessarily a regulatory roadblock, but it's, it's not as smooth as it can be. I think that's more a process problem rather than uh, the fundamental issue with the regulatory idea itself. So for example, when you release a software, it's typically a software as a, you have to treat it as a medical device, which means it needs to undergo certain checkpoints. And once it has done that, it's sort of locked in with that version. But as software developer, we know that we want to continuously improve. We want to add new versions and we want to change it all the time. And currently that is not very well supported, this continuously rolling out of new versions of, of the code. So that, it, that is something that needs to be addressed. But I can see that once this is addressed, once there is continuous checking, automated checking, proving that the algorithm is not slipping and its accuracy uh, while it's um, while it's in action, I think then that is a, a really good setup 
for bringing it into the clinical practice. I mean, it works, for example, in the aviation space and and the banking system. Uh, We just need to make it in a similar, robust and acceptable way, like put a normalcy to it, that it will happen in the the medical space as well. Mm. Wow. That's that's very insightful. <laughs> I want to ask you about oh, Women AI Awards. You applied to uh, to the awards, and you actually won basically the first place in the innovation category. Uh, why did you decide to apply? That's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I think the easy easy answer really is to support the community. I, I did not expect to win. I just wanted to support the community, you know, have more diversity of the fields in there. So it's not just finance or just um, astronomy or, you know, the typical fields that you have with machine learning and AI, um, but have something from health in there as well. And yeah, sort of raise the awareness of the, of the diversity of the field. So, so you didn't expect to win? I did not expect to win at all. So even when I we, you won two, yes, <laughs> you won two categories. <laughs> yes. So when I went there, I, I basically just went there to support my fellow Zaro uh, awardees, <laughs> and yes. So therefore, I was very, very surprised <laughs> when my name was called. How did you feel when you were called to be a nominee, and when they called you on the stage to basically as a winner? How did you feel? <laughs> I, it was a bit like deer in the headlights. So the way that they had the setup was we were all sitting around the tables and then when they called the name, the table was lit up with a really bright, <laughs> bright oh, beam. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and he was surrounded suddenly by bright light and then sort of processing <laughs> this whole... Um, <laughs> Like Oscars. What is, exactly. What is actually happening? See, I don't think there was enough time to feel anything. <laughs> you just had to <laughs> process the sensory overload. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I unfortunately couldn't be there, but I saw the videos and I really, yeah, could feel how the vibe was there. So, <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that. You were just like, oh, okay, I'm called. Okay, I have to go on the stage. Okay, what should I say? <laughs> Did you prepare anything in advance in case you would win or any discouraged? I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is one of the biggest lessons, right? (laughs) Don't go in there unprepared because you never know what is actually happening. Um, But yeah, no, I I did not. I did not prepare anything for sure. Mm -hmm. So what do you suggest to other young women who are working in any different, you know, industry, different field? but they actually want to join the AI industry, learn more, and maybe even, you know, um, do remarkable jobs like yourself. What is your advice to them? The beauty really of the IT industry and AI being part of it is that it's evolving so quickly that you could jump in fairly at the forefront and become the leader fairly quickly. And you don't have to feel like, oh, there's... You know, there are these people in there that have that have been there for 30 years and they are so much way ahead of me. I think the IT industry, because it's so moving, mo- moving so fast, if you jump in with the latest, newest technology, I think you can quickly become a leading name in that space because you're applying those new technology and that puts you already ahead of the, <laughs> you know, the older crowd that's still using their old technology, their old tools. Uh, this was 
by far the most convincing um, argument that I've ever heard. <laughs> Basically, there's there's nothing such as it's too late for me. It's always a good time to yes. jump in it because it's a, such an evol- evolving exactly. field that you can always, yeah, be at the front line. So thank you so much, Denise. Yeah. The best time is <laughs> now. best time is now. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, Denise. Um, we reached the end of our conversation. I absolutely loved it. I learned so much about the genome, genome sequencing and bioinformatics and, and the, the things that I didn't even know pr- about um, the COVID that we had. And <laughs> yeah, just such yes. an inspiring conversation. Thank you for joining our show. Fantastic. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thousand Voices is a production of Thousand Eyes on Me. It is hosted by myself, Mujan Askari. Our supervising director is Aruna Patam. Our producer is Raul Kumar. Our technical director is Ashish Mittal. And our design director is Nusha Askari. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Thousand Voices podcast. Join our community to find out more about our guests and our leadership programs on our website, www.thousandeyeson.me. Until next time.